we separate faith from the sacraments. We have sacramentalized people who have not been catechized. We have catechized people who haven't been evangelized. They might know stuff about the faith, but they don't have a vital relationship with Christ. And we have people who, you know, they're just so culturally Catholic that giving your life to God was never a part of the equation. And we see this in the trend towards the big parish reform movements. I think sometimes they go along with this division between my personal faith and the sacramental life of the church. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knees Shall Bow, the weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am joined by Dave the Baptizer Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? I'm okay. I wish I was the baptizer. Wouldn't it be so cool? Wouldn't it be so cool? If you were the baptizer? Like if that was your nickname? (laughs) That'd be awesome. Well, let, let me tell you, I feel like the stinking baptizer because I am overhauling our entire baptism prep for infant baptism classes. The whole deal, overhauling the whole deal. And you would think, what do you have to overhaul? It's just the sacrament. <sighs> no, I wouldn't I wouldn't think that. I totally You get it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh when you went to go fill up your coffee, mm-hmm. did you walk downstairs to an actual coffee house staffed by individuals with disabilities? No, no, I am not as cool as you. And literally, I have been thinking about your priest this whole time, your boss. <laughs> I've been like, what could we do in these situations? Like, yeah, sometimes you just need to hear how people do things to think like, right. oh, this this actually can be done. Yeah, right. So they have like, so they have tons of employees now. And today, literally, I walked in and somebody just came up and handed me my coffee. I didn't even have to order it. Oh, no. You're one of, yeah. oh, you're a yeah. regular. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, hit me, Joe. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so. you, pretty soon you're going to be Norm Peterson walking in there. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dave, afternoon, everybody. Well, that just, that aged you big time. Norm Jeez. Peterson. I mean, I, I hardly even know who that is. But I was a huge Cheers fan when I was really? like eight and really? ten years old. Yeah. How funny. Okay, I, I hated that show. I, I I don't remember why or what reason, but my one of my favorite lines, Norm walks in and he goes, Afternoon, everybody. And everyone goes, Norm. And then Sam goes, What's going on? Or what's up, Norm? And he goes, My cholesterol. Now let's stop talking and give me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So um I'm pretty excited about these next up, up upcoming episodes because yeah. This document is well. First of all, let's just let's just call a, a spade a spade. You and I could have written this document <laughs> easily. It would easily. It wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been as eloquent or as profound. Agreed. But they almost every line are things that we have discussed in detail in about the, the church in the last four years. Yeah, right. In right. this show, and here's the other cool thing. The other cool thing is now that I'm a published author. <laughs> I oh, could totally have written that one as for eloquent. a while. Yeah, sure. hey, my book is now for sale. Wisdom and wonder, my book. I have a chapter in a book, and it's it's awful. Oh God, oh, help boy, me. guys, let's all collectively roll our eyes at Gomer <laughs> for that one. I can we knew he, this was coming. I can hear it from here. <laughs> but no, this document is awesome. This document, I again, I thought this was written in like the 1970s for some stupid reason. I just had it in my brain that it was written back then. And then I don't even know what got me onto it. I think I was literally just Googling stuff about baptism and I came across this thing and I was like, whoa, whoa, this is probably the most important issue in the church today in terms of evangelization, discipleship across the board, how we separate faith from the sacraments, how we have sacramental uh, people or sacramentalized people who have not been catechized. We have catechized people who haven't been evangelized. I think they might know stuff about the faith, but they don't have a vital relationship with Christ. And we have people who, you know, they're just so culturally Catholic that giving your life to God was never a part of the equation. And yet they received the Eucharist without confession. They, you know, like all of these things. And we see this in the trend towards, now this is the part where I think Dave, me and you, we're going to end up in some hostile territory eventually. But yeah, I see we'll wrestle. the big reform movements in the church that we've spoken about before, that parish reform movements, I think sometimes 
they go along with this lack of reciprocity, this division between my personal faith and the sacramental life of the church. And they adopt a what I would say is a Baptist or non-denominational approach that is an anti-sacramental approach to faith. Uh, and so in in having this, this is a theological document. It's not a, the catechism. It's not written for ordinary lay people. It is theology. So what we want to do is help break down some of the language, some of the stuff that we might get tripped over, emphasize some things. But I truly believe if you are trying to help people come to salvation in Jesus Christ, what is salvation? But communion with the triune God. If we're trying to accomplish that and we don't understand the place and role of the church and the sacraments in that, we, we're going to fail. So this is why I am so excited to do this as a series with you. Yeah, I agree. And uh, a, f- a few caveats too. This is why theology is so important, why yeah. we need faithful Orthodox theology programs at universities, because this was a ground up document. Um, I don't know if you if you read the preliminary notes, but it was presented by the International Theological Commission and and handed up. So they were looking at the church, seeing the signs of the times and saying, this is what we need to do. This is the service theology needs to make. And man, did they do it. I mean, wow. they did a great service. So that's awesome. Uh, number two, I think that I recently have had a change a little bit maybe that we might not argue as much because I, for the first time, you know, I've read several books on different parish renewal movements and stuff like that, but for the first time actually watched a video of like a liturgy at one of them. And I just, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize some implications that I thought I might've, that I didn't, I I mean, there just were some implications that I just didn't realize were there. And it it broke your heart, didn't it? It It was so shocking to me yeah i i i haven't stopped thinking about it for three weeks it was father david huss who posted a video yeah because Uh, i sent him that video okay okay. because because we were having these conversations right and in the middle of these conversations it was like here's the fruit of a church claiming to be catholic yet immediately diverting from everything recognizably catholic right just the right. biggest and shell or the thinnest shell over a non-denominational service, a Catholic shell over a non-denominational service. Right. And 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 very much just deciding that well, well, there's no reciprocity. Like like what we're gonna discuss is, you know, this the, the relationship between faith and sacraments. They're saying there's no faith, so we're gonna do everything we can. We're gonna stack all our, our bricks on the side of trying to build faith. And then, and then once that happens, then we'll, we'll swing it back, but it didn't get swung back. Yeah. I mean, there's no part of that. It's that was a shocking video that I, <laughs> I, I haven't stopped thinking about it for three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. The sight of that uh, mass will haunt your dreams forever. <laughs> that yeah. was my yeah. terrible impression of, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> what is that show called? Ah, Oh, it's an Adam Sandler movie. Anyway, the hideousness of that foot will haunt my nightmares oh, yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, my kids love that. Yeah. So, okay, awesome. that, that was a dumb divergence, but uh, <laughs> what? Okay, so we're going to start. We're just going to work our way through this document. Now, as we get going, we're probably not going to cover every single paragraph, but these first two paragraphs are yeah, very I think important. Yeah, we should. Yeah. 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 And so just to put it in context, even if you haven't read it, I think you can follow along. But honestly, you need to read this. So part one is called Faith and Sacraments, Relevance and Actuality. And 1.1 is the divine salvific order or excuse me, the divine salvific offer is based on the interrelationship between faith and the sacraments. So he's saying salvation is given through this interrelationship. Right. And they start with scripture. Beautiful. Okay. So, and they say, starting with scripture. So paragraph one, starting with scripture, it, it right off the bat starts on fire, goes to quote scripture, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of the disease. Quoting Mark 534, that faith immediately, even when Christ walks on earth, this is what they're going to do. They're going to build an argument here that when Christ walks on earth, faith was still involved, right? We They make this argument that that his body is the sacrament, but faith is still involved in the, in the interaction between what he is going to do for you and what he can do for you, that there must be faith involved. And so in this first, uh, this first paragraph, it gives several examples from scripture, but one of the lines that jumps out to me that I 
love and will haunt me in a good way for the rest mm-hmm. of my life is this line, faith is located in the sphere of interpersonal relationships. I could not love that more. Right, right. So I think when we talk about the sacramental life of the church, the danger yeah. is the sacraments are these external signs. There's rituals, right? And yeah. we can come to the sacraments like anyone can. You come to it with a cultural thing. It's a part of my culture. It's a thing we do. It's a habit. It's a, you know, it's an empty ritual. It's these things that we perform because of some old legacy stuff, but no one actually believes in these things. And then you have the other side. So there it's the externals. Then you have the other side where faith is this intense subjective, like that is in a good sense, like it's this interior drive to know and love God more. And within that, you can see that there are Catholics who have this interior desire, this conversion experience, this encounter experience with Christ who don't necessarily see the link with the sacraments. And then you have people who are sacramentalized, but they're not evangelized. So you have, for many Catholics in their ordinary practice, there's almost this war between an external manifestation or the the externalization of the sacramental life of the church and an interior fiery faith. And the problem is for many Catholics, when they go from just merely going through the rituals, going through the motions, and they go on a retreat and they have, you know, whether it's a charismatic retreat, an axe retreat, whatever it might be, and they encounter Christ in a personal way, it immediately, for many of them, subjectivizes. That is, it doesn't really build a bridge to the sacraments. At least that's the danger. And so people feel this interior, like, well, I'm a real disciple. The sacraments must not do anything if you have all these fake people. Because I was fake and went to mass every so often, and my life wasn't changed. And so the problem is what we miss is this intrinsic reciprocity. All those people in the crowd at the, hem- the story of the hemorrhaging woman in Mark 5 were touching Jesus. The hemorrhaging woman was the one who was healed, Right. And that notion that it exists within the sphere of interpersonal relationships, there's no such thing as faith if I don't take God, the triune God, personally. Right. And if I don't take my sacramental life personally, faith can't happen. It can't be actualized because I'm depersonalizing faith. And there's no place for that in the church. This is exactly why when I go into a parish every year, I teach the class to my catechist how to express a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in a Catholic way, right? In the Catholic church because of exactly what you just said. So what's interesting. So this first paragraph, it sets up a few different things and it goes off even into saying that, look, when Christ walked on earth, there was still this need for faith. It wasn't automatic. It says, however, this efficacy does not have an automatic character. So the power of Christ is not automatic. It's not just something that happens without your cooperation. He doesn't he doesn't uh, grace you, right? He gives grace because of your receptivity. It requires an adequate, adequate contact with it, humble, imploring, open to the gift. And then, skip it a sentence, it says this amazing thing to end that first paragraph. It says, the sacraments of the church prolong in time the works of Christ during his earthly life. In them is actualized the healing power that emanates from the body of Christ, which is the church to heal the w- from the wound of sin and to give new life in Christ. Mm. I, if, if we could have one grace, mm. right? If we could have one grace, it's what they're talking about here, that we would see in the person of the priest, Jesus Christ. Right. Today, walking among us today. Yeah. And so one of the things I want to point out is the humanity of Jesus right? The document calls out the humanity of Jesus Christ is the effective channel of God's salvation. When you pray morning prayer, there's this little phrase from, I believe, St. Irenaeus that says the humanity of Christ is the gateway to heaven. Yeah. And when you think about that phrase, why is it? Because his, his humanity, his human nature, the full human nature that he assumed, remember, he took not just a body, but also a human soul, a human intellect, a human will, human emotions and desires and all of that stuff. But it was through his body that the divinity was communicated, right? And that's so important because when you open up the catechism of the Catholic Church, and actually in some of our episodes on the sacraments, we've recommended these handful of paragraphs in the catechism before, it uses the story of the hemorrhaging woman to actually give a definition of the sacraments that, that our 
powers which go forth from the body of Christ, right? So when you think about it, the woman approached with faith. She said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Many people were touching Jesus, but the woman who came in faith was healed. He has the power. He wants to give the power, but faith is our ability to be receptive to what Christ wants to give us. And so that's why they have this really sick quote from JP2, which is, that faith is, first of all, a personal adherence of man to God. So I want to, I want those of you listening to this, when you think of your personal prayer and when you think of receiving confession or communion, think of that thing where it says it requires an adequate contact with it, humble, imploring, and open to the gift. Are you those things? Whether you're doing prayers of petition, whether you're receiving Holy Communion, do you have humility? Are you imploring and are you open to the gift? Are you open to what Christ wants to give? So those are my comments. So if you want to talk about the relationship between faith and the sacraments, how funny that the church in the catechism uses the hemorrhaging woman as the paradigm to explain what the sacraments do in the body of Christ, the church. And that's exactly where they start out in this document. So let's roll on uh, to paragraph two. So the first two. one is from scripture. And now we're going to from the tradition with this amazing quote from St. Basil the Great in his uh, De Spiritu Sancto. Go ahead. Oh, you want me to do it? Oh, yeah. so in explaining this from the tradition, I think this quote is incredible. Faith and baptism are, however, two mutually inherent and inseparable modes of salvation. This is from St. Basil. For faith is, in fact, perfected through baptism and baptism for its part is founded through faith and both attain their fullness through the same names. For as we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so we are baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And certainly the confession of faith goes forward, which introduces us into salvation, but baptism follows, which seals our assent. And the way I always look at this is through the catechumenate, right? No one joins the RCIA except they, well, okay, no one should join the catechumenate, unless they desire to be united to Christ and his church because they believe that he's the son of God, right? So it's faith precedes and founds and drives me to the sacraments, right? That's the, that's the image that the church has always had. And proof of this is in the very right of infant baptism, which I've been overhauling, which is, you know, you bring the godparents up for infant baptism. They said, uh, what do you ask of the church? Faith. And what does faith give you? Eternal life in Christ. You don't say, I mean, you're coming for baptism. And the church asks, what do you want? Like, what are you asking for the church? Baptism seals, completes, perfects your human faith coming to Christ. Amen. So it, it, it moves on and it talks about. Am I just getting preachy? Am I just preaching? I'm like going off here. I love this document. Sorry. Yeah, I do too. I do too. It's hard not to when you read it. Okay. So it moves on and it talks about how it gets into like the, the nitty gritty of what this entire paper is about. Right. And it says uh, between faith and the sacraments, there is a mutual ordination and a circularity in a word, an essential reciprocity. However, as Basil testifies in the above text, confession of faith precedes sacramental celebration. So in, in simple, you have faith that God wants to do something in your life and that you desire that relationship, you desire that grace. And so you approach the means that he gave us to receive that grace in faith, right? That is your ascent of faith to approach that way. It would be strange to approach for any other reason. For instance, most people come into RCIA because they got married, right? Uh, if, you're, if your motivation is solely that, that is not an, that's not a way to enter the church, right? If your motivation is just so, you know what? I don't want there to be this weird thing where my kids think we go to two different churches. No, it is a desire to be unified with Christ, and that is why you seek out baptism. Yeah, and another thing Sherry Waddell always points out, and this has been a catechism reference we have made dozens of times, which is paragraph 1072. The sacred liturgy does not exhaust the entire activity of the church, which comes from Sector Sanctum Concilium, it must be preceded by evangelization, faith, and conversion. So if you think of this document as a theological deep dive into a handful of these incredibly important paragraphs in the catechism, this is one of them. It must, the sacred liturgy must be preceded by evangelization, faith, and conversion. It can then produce its fruits in the lives of the faithful, new life in the spirit, involvement in the mission of the church, and service to her unity. Right, so what it's saying is, 
the evangelization, the proclamation of the gospel, the reception of that proclamation, my commitment to Christ and my desire to live a new life through repentance and all that stuff, that is what precedes my ability to participate in the sacred liturgy. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes, especially for parents of children who have left the church, we tend to minimize what it means to be a Catholic as someone who goes to mass regularly, right? So I often counsel parents. I just did the other night. I'm trying to pick up my daughter and this guy comes up to me. Wonderful guy. I had spoken with his teenage daughter and he's like, it breaks my heart that she doesn't want to go to mass anymore. I said, well, don't start with her on trying to prove the mass is the most important thing. She's an angsty teenager. Take her to the food pantry. Right? We we serve like a billion pounds of food a year. Take her to the food pantry. Let her see the charity of Jesus Christ unfurled in front of our eyes, right? And so when we see that it doesn't exhaust the entire activity of the church, we also have to realize that evangelization is not necessarily something that takes place in the sacred liturgy, which is a comment that we made when we were talking about the Latin in the mass and the Latin mass and all these different things is the place of evangelization leads to the liturgy, right? Evangelization, faith, and conversion. That stuff precedes our ability to receive the word of God proclaimed and the word of God in the sacraments. And and when we do it wrong, which we'll, we'll discuss, it'll get into later in the top in the document. When we do it wrong, we cement a situation that prevents a person from ever experiencing the power of Jesus Christ yeah. in their life. And so this is why people like Gomer and I and so many DREs across the country get so angry when people present their children for sacraments and have absolutely no intention of actually evangelizing their child, of having a life of faith in their home. This is why we get so upset when parents want their kid confirmed just because it's freshman year of school, high yeah. school. Because it cements a situation where that poor child might never, ever be able to experience the power of Jesus Christ. Because uh, what does it do? It creates this vicious cycle. Well, I, I tried confirmation. It didn't do anything for me. So why would I have faith in Jesus Christ, right? right. It's this ridiculous crisis that, we, that we're in that anyone from the outside looking in should be able to see, but we're kind of in a rat race. Yeah. And if faith is that sphere of interpersonal relationship, this paragraph, speaking from the tradition, calls it a personal relationship with the triune God. But that personal relationship is not private, right? It's not me and Jesus. And this document will get into it in a much deeper way. See, this is the great thing about this, right? It's realized, this personal relationship is realized through faith in the sacraments. We have spent about 15 minutes now just talking about paragraph one and two, which will take you three minutes of reading. You would have blown right through this. But remember, we're focusing on the reciprocity between the two. And the document calls it an essential reciprocity. That means it's built in. It's not, the sacraments are not added to, right? My interior faith in Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I heard amazing preaching and I was on this retreat and I had this profound experience and I've never had that when I've received communion. And it's like, right, you weren't evangelized. You didn't have faith. You didn't convert, but you kept presenting yourself before the sacred liturgy, We kept having the same problems, and we were expecting different results, right? Over and over again, we keep coming to the liturgy, coming to the sacraments when we have no faith whatsoever. Faith isn't being taught in the home. It's not being lived out. And then we present ourselves for the sacraments just like we're one of the other people walking on the street next to the hemorrhaging woman. We're bumping into Jesus. We're talking to Jesus. We're calling out to Jesus, but we're not a disciple. We're not responding with faith. And so we wonder, well, like, oh, well, adios, that stuff. And it's like, yeah, well. We haven't been doing what we should be doing. So let's go on to yeah. uh, one part two. Wait, current, wait, 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 yeah. wait. But wait okay. Before we move on, before we move on. I've already finished my whole why. cup of coffee. I've already finished <laughs> it. I'm so anxious. We can hear it. The, the, <laughs> of the, yeah. This is why I obsess so much about the incarnational aspect of the priesthood yeah. in the in Catholic Church because I don't, I don't believe that very many lay people and maybe even some priests understand how important this aspect is because yeah, I, I was in a, a diocese one time uh, for a talk and I, I had to like find an early mass before my flight and a priest was giving a vocation talk, you know, and he said, people ask me all the time, what is a priest? And I, and, and uh, he answered, he said, I, I always say to them, a priest is someone who helps you to interpret what God wants for your life. And I remember 
Oh, you must have I was been so, so sad. <laughs> I was so angry, right? It was like almost hard for me to understand because that is so not true, right? We don't have ministers. That's not, we have priests, you know, we don't have just pastors. We have priests. And that's so important because of this whole aspect of it being incarnational, that, that it prolongs the power of Christ on earth to have these sacraments, that this is the way Christ wants to interact with us in the most profound way, this side of the grave. Yeah. Yeah. That is now so my true. favorite part. Now my favorite part, the crisis. <laughs> they, these people are, they're prophets. Yeah. Yeah. This I mean, is they great. hit the nail on the head right here. These, these next paragraphs. Yeah. So this is great. So in part, in one part, 1.2, the current crisis of reciprocity between faith and the sacraments, they go through a handful of what they believe are the key things philosophically, theologically, that are ruining the faith, right? And they want to take these head on. And I think they do a great job introducing it. Yeah. But I also will say this threw up the most amount of, huh? From my uh, parish staff who haven't been trained in philosophy and theology. They were like, wait, okay. what is this? Okay. But, um, okay, interesting. Yeah. So uh, the, the first subheading is faith and sacraments, a reciprocity in crisis. Finding. Already in 1977, the International Theological Commission, same group that produced this document, different people, but same, you know, organization, referring to the sacrament of marriage, warned of the existence of baptized nonbelievers. How many times, how many times have people like Sherry Waddell and others like gone after this, like people like ruin the language. I remember Sherry on her Facebook group was sharing this hilarious torturing of the language in order to describe people like, what did they call them? Baptized, but non-practicing disciples or something like that was one yeah, of these documents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you can't, that's not what a disciple is. You can't be a non-practicing <laughs> disciple. Like that's kind of the thing, but this is what they're talking about. They're demanding the sacrament of marriage, these baptized non-believers. And that's what started this group reflecting on this. It says this raises a bunch of new questions because it it creates this huge discomfort. Ask any priest who's sitting there forming a couple for marriage. They're living together. They're sleeping together. They've been playing house for four years. And now they're doing this because they want to make mom or grandmom or someone happy. And they're every everyone is uncomfortable because it's like, well, you don't really want a sacramental marriage because you don't really have faith. But at the same time, you know, like I don't want to withhold the sacramental grace for you. What do we do with this? And so there's this profound uneasiness that happens uh, when you you have that lack of faith, but a demand, a consumeristic demand for the sacraments. So first, let's dive in, Dave, to paragraph four. This is where I'm most excited. Because oh my you get gosh, the, me too. You get to flex like with the philosophy side of this. So the theological, do, philosophical do you know, roots. Do, okay, so do you know what's so awesome about this is that uh, – just before we even get into this, so I so Peter Kreef said for his students when I was with him a, a few weekends ago, right? Oh, right, right, that, right. So I wrote a chapter in a book about Peter Kreef, but you got to be. But with we spent him. we yeah we just hung out all weekend, and like, we're actually the colleagues now. So, um, <laughs> so what he said is that, it, and I'm going to ask you this question that he asked me. He said, "What do you think his freshman students? What philosopher do you think they have the hardest time with of all the philosophers that they have the hardest time with?" Yeah, hmm. his freshman students. He said this is about in the last 10 years. Freshman philosophy students, who do they have the most, the the hardest time with? Man, I don't know. I would probably, I, I want to say St. Thomas, but like, I don't know, Aristotle, Plato? Aristotle, Aristotle. good. Aristotle. Good guess, okay? Nice. And here's why, because they cannot abstract the forms, they cannot do it. And this is exactly what this paragraph gets to, huh. is this idea of nominalism, right? Uh, uh so I'm going to read a little quote here that, that explains, you know, kind of the heart of the paragraph. An extended line of thought starting from the Middle Ages, nominalism, and reaching modernity is characterized by an anti-metaphysical dualism that dissociates thinking from being and categorically rejects all kinds of representative thought, as is the case today in post-modernity. This is so true that we that nominalism destroyed any ability of mystery. Mystery yeah. is gone from yeah. from our lives, right? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, a brief refresher on nominalism. Nominalism comes from the Latin word nomen, meaning name, and it goes back to a guy that many of you might know, even though you've never read any of his theology, William of Occam, from which we get Occam's Razor. A lot of people might know that. 
And in the paragraph, it says there is a deep rooted philosophical factor that destroys sacramental logic. And just like Dave said, it creates an anti-metaphysical dualism that separates thinking from being. What does that mean? Nominalism says there are no such thing as natures or essences. Right. Right. So if you think about St. Thomas Aquinas, he's always talking about the essence of things. The essence of things is the being of a thing. Right. So Dave and I, we're not angelic. We're not being as such. That's God alone. And so God defines or limits being. So you have angelic being, human being. The phrase human being comes from this perspective. We are beings, right? But we who have existence, all that good stuff. But here's our limitation. Here is our definition. Here is our essence. We are human. We're not angelic. We're not dogs, whatever. And so from this perspective, the to know a thing is to honestly understand the category or the the nature of a thing. When we talk about human nature all the time. William of Ockham said, there are no such thing as natures. There are no such thing as essences. They don't exist in the world, right? They're not a, there's not like, oh, here's Dave Van Vickle and here's Dave's nature. There's no such, it's not, you know, Jim, uh, Dave and human nature, you know, sitting in three different chairs. So what he was saying was, these are just names. It's just a flapping of the lips. These are just names that we human beings come up with. And we throw it on to these categories because they look similar. There's no such thing as trees. There's only individual trees, right? And we use the term tree to cover everything from a bonsai to a weeping willow, but it doesn't mean anything in the real world. It's just us playing with names. And so as a whole, nominalism is what we call modernity. Like mod the modern mind came from William of Ockham's nominalism. It immediately took hold Throughout Europe, it spread especially to the kings. With William of Ockham came a whole new, a very Muslim view of God where his absolute power, not his absolute love and truth as the defining characteristic of who God is. So God could have made a mortal sin a prerequisite for entering heaven. God could have crucified right. a donkey for our <laughs> salvation. His power defines what's good, not the other way around. Not God loves the good and so good things for us and our nature is what God approves and evil is what God disapproves. He was like, no, God just made it that way. From that philosophy came the the really the theology of the divine right of kings. Didn't exist in the Middle Ages at Thomas Aquinas's time, but it did afterward after Occam. And so what he's saying is this breaks nominalism breaks our human thinking from the real world around us. It dissociates thinking from being, and you find from this point on that destroys the sacramental logic going forward. So, yeah. It says was that, this. Was that a small summary of two? Things? No, that was good. No, that was good. That was very good, except for the fact that you didn't use the phrase hoarseness. That's the problem. I, it is. Everyone true. learns forms from hoarseness. I know. Okay. <laughs> it's. A, it goes on to say this perspective rejects the creator's imprint in creation. Of course, it does because that is the creation be a mirror, a sacramental image of the creator's own thoughts. It ends this paragraph by saying, in short, as, and as a decisive aspect, when the capacity of reason to know the truth of being is denied, the inability to gain access to know God's truth is being implied. Basically, when you destroy truth, then you destroy God's truth too. And if you destroy God's truth, why, why would you ever go to a sacrament? Why would you ever waste your time on something like that if you don't believe that there is even a, a truth like that? Right. And so... Think about nominalism saying there's no category of being called nature. So we just impose these things, essences and natures, on a bunch uh, and think categorically. But there's only individual things, right? And so from that perspective, there's no orderly reality. There's no order. There's no creation. There's just chaos. And humanity imposes on the chaos our own mental order. We play games mentally categorically but it doesn't actually correspond to nature it just helps us deal with nature and that's the reason why nominalism is so deadly to the sacraments because what they're saying is there's a fundamental break between creation and our ability to know creation and if that breaks then we've just anthropocentrized the sacraments we've just said well yeah like you have these sacraments they're great you know i like them but 
I think we should reorder the mass to be more like this. I think we should restructure these prayers to be more like that. And what ends up happening is we we start to play games with the sacraments. These are word games that now become actual games. And we begin to view the sacraments as nothing other than human constructs that make us feel good about God. So we go from nominalism now into nominalism's ill-begotten child, which is a scientism, yeah. right? And so, uh, Dave, why don't you take us into paragraph five there? Okay. So uh, so each of these paragraphs presents uh, a reason for the current crisis that yeah. we're in, okay? And the, and the next one is scientific and technical knowledge. And, and the key phrase in here is, uh, quote, it's radical orientation towards certainty of an empirical and naturalistic type is opposed not only to metaphysical knowledge, but also to knowledge of a symbolic nature. Mm-hmm. Meaning, easily, if you can't prove that that's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, if you can't measure it, if you can't prove it, if you can't put it into a, uh, a logical syllogism and, and, and get, get through it, then it's not real. Because that's what science has done now, is this ridiculousness of if you can't see it, feel it, touch it, measure it, then you cannot prove that it's real and that it, therefore it's not real. Yeah. So if you think about it, we're imposing categories, words, phrases onto nature. Nature itself doesn't have it. Science then says the only thing that matters is scientific and technological knowledge. So they have the the next sentence, while scientific knowledge emphasizes the capacity of human reason, awesome, it does not exhaust all the dimensions of reason or knowledge, nor does it cover all the cognitive needs for a full human life. So for instance, just the other day, um, uh, an atheist was sitting in my office and we were talking about different things and they said, you know, I can't believe in God because science can't prove him. I said, science can indicate the need for a God. And he's like, well, that's like the God of the gaps and stuff. I just, I can't believe it. Plus all the moral stuff of the church, mostly referring to, you know, marriage issues and sexuality issues. And I just said, okay, do me a favor, put justice under a microscope. Do me a favor, do an empirical analysis of human rights, of inalienable human rights. You can't do it, right? Because we know that scientific knowledge, while incredibly important and powerful, does not exhaust all of human life, right? It can't, it cannot exhaust all of the richness of what it means to be human. And so they go on to say, and this is going to help set up the rest of the document, we need to think symbolically. Ancient people thought symbolic. If you ever listen to Bishop Aaron, a word on fire, he often references Charles Taylor talking about the buffered self versus the, I think the poorest self. The buffered self was this, um, is the modern man where he's erected this barrier between the supernatural, whereas ancient man, a medieval man, was a porous self, that the supernatural and the natural interacted with one another, poured into one another. They thought symbolically. If you ever watch anything, and honestly, I believe this is where Jordan Peterson, uh, his work is doing so much for the church today, is because he's representing symbolic thinking and he's right. he's giving back symbolic thinking its value. Well, you know, we don't have to agree with every every biblical interpretation that he has, but his way of justifying, even from a scientific perspective, the power of symbolic thinking is ultimately how we're going to recover the sacraments. Right. So they go on to say that symbolic thinking has a couple things. Number one, it's very rich. It's very plastic. And I mean, it's, it has a lot of um, flexibility to it. It can collect a lot of different things into it. But he said, the other thing is, he says, for this reason, together with all the religious traditions of humanity, so religious traditions use symbolic thinking, the transmission of revelation with its concomitant cognitive content, that's a mouthful, and alliteration, so it's awesome. But what it means is that the symbol contains knowledge, but that knowledge exists within the symbolic sphere and not in the empirical, right? So you can't dissect, like Dave said, you can't shred apart the host and expect to find it bleeding just because, you know, you you subjected it to scientific. Now, obviously, there are scientific miracles, but the idea is you're not going to subject the sacraments to a series of empirical tests, not discover anything special about the baptismal water, roll your eyes, and then move on, Right. And so what we want to do is we part of our formation is recovering, right, this symbolic understanding that there is a union between the cognitive side of symbolic thinking and it leads to action. What it's cognitive and performative. So we're going to go through that. Awesome. I want to I think you should do number six because 
instead of like outlining a bunch of things, I literally just circled the whole paragraph because I felt like every word was so important. Yeah. So, okay. So this is important. And this, this is actually going to be a lot easier to explain. He said, so first is nominalism that destroys the connection between thought and being. Second is scientific knowledge and technological knowledge, which only emphasizes a type of thinking that is scientific thinking. And then thirdly, so a denial of the symbolic logic, right? Thirdly, we must still point to a significant cultural change. So now we're going to the level of culture proper to the new civilization of image, which poses a new problem to the theological clarification of sacramental faith. While it is true that a rationalist modernity, so this scientific thinking, which we call rationalist modernity, minimizes the cognitive value of symbol. It basically says there's not much knowledge there. Contemporary postmodernity, if you've heard of that phrase, postmodern, Postmodernity, nevertheless, exalts with great intensity the performative power of images. So what they're saying is we live in now because of the Internet, because of uh, new media. We live in an age for the last 100, 150 years. We live in an age of images. Right. And so the idea of the rationalist mind of modernity is everything must be empirical. But the postmodern person kind of rejects that. And so they look for the power of images. They want to emphasize it, but when they divorce it from the cognitive content that modernity denies, it leads to something a little bit more, it leads to something bizarre. So modernity, post-modernity is trying to say, yeah, there is this performance after symbols move us, but how do they move us? He says, this reduces the effectiveness of symbol to just the emotional power of representation. So you remove the cognitive, what's left, the performative, but without the cognitive, the performative is just sentimentality. Right? Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't reduce it to something ridiculous, it reduces it to something Protestant. It, right? I mean, let's use the Eucharistic example. So we go from not believing that it could be that we need to we need to measure it, we need to see the blood, we need to see the flesh, so it couldn't be the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. We we go into saying like, well, no, it's 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 a it's a symbol of a reality that we can see with our own senses, and then we move so far the opposite direction that it's a symbol of something that is I don't know completely symbolic, entirely symbolic, right? Uh, a symbol of unity with God as opposed to no, this is an actual sacrament, a sign communicating a mystery. That is, you know, a symbolic sign that communicates a mystery. It's yeah. it's very very strange. So think about this. This is the 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 paragraph calls it a double emptying. So the modern thing is, okay, if a symbol means anything, it's just my intellect imposing on this. So yeah, it 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 might mean like baptism is a washing. Okay, great, you're washing. The postmodern person would look at baptism or the ritual and see it as about the community, about yeah, newness yeah, of right. life, about restoring, right? So right. it reduces it just to the emotional power. And so when we, as Catholics, we would say, when we look at the waters of baptism, there's a reason why, especially in the rites going up to Easter or around Easter vigil baptism, what do they do? They take the Paschal candle and they plunge it into the baptismal waters, right? They do all of this stuff because the baptismal waters, the symbolic, the cognitive and performative aspect of the waters of baptism is what one, the waters present at creation Two, the waters of Noah, which St. Peter directly alludes to in first Peter, where he says eight were saved in all meaning Noah's wife, their three boys and their three wives, eight were saved in all by passing through the waters, which prefigures baptism, which saves you now. So the waters of Noah's flood, the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of the Jordan River when Israel entered the promised land, the use of water throughout the Old Testament, when we come up to baptism, those aren't just symbolized, meaning, oh, that's nice. It kind of represents those things. It's like, no, 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 right. no, no, no. They are those things sacramentally. It's not like we're taking a scoop of water from the deep of the Tehom waters of, of chaos. But because of what we do with our, our prayers and our rites, God really does transform these things, right? They really do have power. But what happens when you go to a baptism, right? You don't hear the majority of that stuff. What you hear is sentimentality. You hear what, what it ends this phrase with is, a pure aesthetic suggestion carried out by means of ritual staging. And so it's, it's just representation. It's not even symbol. It's propaganda. And that's what's deadly 
when we disassociate faith from the sacraments, when we disassociate thinking from being. So these things are real, real big distortions. So let's go on. Number seven, the easiest for all of us to understand is just the rise of atheism and relativism in our society. It creates a major problem for anyone understanding the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments. If there's no truth, if there's no God, right, all of this is just some sort of, I don't know, club, (laughs) (laughs) historical society in a sense. Yeah. And the other thing is, it has this great line. It says the rise of the technocratic paradigm insert technocratic, uh, the focus on technology and technique and experts as the paradigm to run and rule society and give us truth and all the stuff. He says inserts a logic contrary to faith, which is a personal relationship. So you have this rise of a denial of faith. Then you have the rise of an emotional reduction of faith to just subjective belief. And so then you throw in that you got scientism, right, that denies God, denies his intervention in human history, in your personal life, and all of the stuff that makes up reality, like the things proclaimed in the creed, all of a sudden no longer matter, right? All of a sudden no longer matter. In fact, are viewed with suspicion and acts of coercion. No, no, no. It's all about my conscience, right? right? It's all about, you know, what I believe, my truth. And it's like, no, 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 no. You are submitting. You are submitting to the faith of the church that precedes your own faith, right? So it becomes almost impossible within this context to actually receive Christ in this way. And that's why this stuff is so deadly dangerous um, to the very act of faith today. So I don't want to slow this down, but we do need to get a, a message in from Ascension Press. And there are two more paragraphs that we got to get through oh. today. Uh, and the last two are so important. So let's uh, throw it back to our friends at Ascension Press. We love being a part of the Ascension Press community. And as always, uh, anything they recommend, we are on board with. They, they just have such fantastic products. Yeah. If you enjoyed the Rejoice Advent resources in the past Advents, you know firsthand how God can use this season of Advent to foster a personal encounter with Him so that you are ready for the person of Jesus Christ at Christmas. My name is Father Mark Toops, author of the Rejoice Advent Meditation Series, and I'm excited about this year as we invite you on a pilgrimage as we learn more about the places, people, and events of the very first Advent. I am humbled with all of you who have uh, celebrated with me the gift of Advent. Over 100,000 people have been a part of the Rejoice resource in the past. It's been a humble privilege for me to walk with you, and I'm excited about this year's pilgrimage as we learn more about those places, people, and events of the very first Advent. To learn more and to go on the pilgrimage with us, go to rejoiceprogram.com. Until we see you in this Advent journey, God bless you. And we are back. Good news. We have two paragraphs left, but come on, let's be honest. If you're following along, like you should be sitting here with the Vatican document, Vatican.va. You just do a search reciprocity. A picture of Gomer's face on your desk. You should. Well, I mean, I think pretty much by now everyone's printed that out and has it on a frame. Yeah, probably. Uh, But now we're going to go through what we call pastoral failure. So here's another one of the issues. Right. So we've gone through nominalism. We've gone through the scientific uh, technological view of knowledge. Then we just critiqued the distortions of faith and all that. Um, So now we're coming into pastoral failures and we have to own this one. Now, remember, this was published in January of 2021. This is not an ancient document. This is not written by a bunch of rad trads. So, Dave, let's dive into that first sentence in paragraph eight. Yeah. Okay, great. It, it's, uh, it's a fantastic paragraph that talks about post-Vatican II failures of catechesis and evangelization. Okay, It basically says uh, in the post-Vatican II period, there have been widespread attitudes among the faithful and a, a lot of pastors. And what I found is that a lot of pastors just kind of went with the flow with a lot of this. Okay, It says, and I quote, thus the pastoral approach of evangelization has sometimes been understood as if it did not include sacramental pastoral care, thus losing the balance between the word of God 
evangelization, and the sacraments. This is so 100% true. And honestly, you can go from parish to parish and pretty much show where their balance was was out of whack, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, oh, this person focused on evangelization, this person focused on this, this person focused on this, and that it built a parish culture around that. Yeah. Uh, and all three of those things need to be balanced perfectly. So, uh, so the paragraph uh, basically kind of chastises the church for focusing on things that are peripheral to to the sacramental economy, right? Yeah. Things that support it, things that should come from it, more importantly. Can I tell you and my favorite that, line? Can I tell you my favorite line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I get this from people who, when you talk about the liturgy, so people are very sensitive right now, the liturgy wars, we call it. But when you talk about, okay, well, we have to do what the church asks for the liturgy. No pastor nor community of the faithful is allowed to alter the liturgy to make them feel better. You can't do that. Right, you can't. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks right. about this so specifically: lex orandi, lex credendi. Right, the way of prayer is the way of belief. The law of prayer is the law of belief. And so, when we start mucking around with our prayers, it ruins our beliefs. So, this is what he says. I get this all the time when people say, "You can obsess all you want over the liturgy and all you want over whatever, but I'm still going to love my neighbor." Right? I hear people say this: "I'm still going to evangelize. I'm going to do this," and Here's the problem. You have people that are obsessed with liturgy. They don't care about community. They don't care about charity. Yeah. You know, they only care about this one thing. Right. And this document bypasses both of that. He says, others have not grasped that the primacy of charity in the Christian life does not imply contempt for the sacraments. Some pastors have focused their ministry on community building, neglecting the decisive place of the sacraments for that purpose in this endeavor. In some places, there have been a lack of theological evaluation and pastoral accompaniment of popular Catholic piety in order to help it grow in faith and thus achieve full Christian initiation and frequent sacramental participation. Let's be honest. Things that have developed in our, even in our Catholic pieties and devotions, right? They have gone so far askew from actually connecting us to life of the church. Let's talk about how many quinceañeras are all about the party and not about the mass and not about the blessing, right? Let's talk about confirmation where kids are given in the suburbs are given presents just to get confirmed as like a carrot and the stick, right? This isn't <laughs> about the thing. Like people choose or view uh, confirmation as graduation, right? That's exactly what we're talking about. Now I'll, t- I'll tell you, uh, I mean, a perfect story that sums this up is I would say over my, I don't know, 15 years of working for the church, I'd say probably a hundred people have approached me in e- with an email saying, I have some ideas about how we can evangelize and get more people involved in the parish. Can I come and meet with you? And I'd say 90, and I'm not exaggerating, that's a conservative estimate. 90 of those people have said, if we just had the youth, if we had different teams from the school or the youth presenting things at mass, then their families would come. And if their families would come, maybe they would stay. And when they say presenting things, I mean things that are additional to the liturgy. So for instance, you know, they're, they're doing like liturgical dances. They're doing things like this. They're, they're, uh, you know, doing all the readings at mass and all this kind of stuff that this is the idea, right? That everyone has this idea that if we just build this community, then they'll stay for it. Community comes from communion with Christ and that's what I love about this paragraph. In particular, it, it, it says, uh, you know, some pastors, well, neglecting the decisive place of the sacraments for that purpose in this endeavor, right? That the sacraments bring unity. And who wants unity that's not rooted in Jesus Christ? So a lot I of people who don't want to be converted. Right. A lot of people who don't want to be converted, who don't want to repent, who don't want to walk away from their life, who want their preferences to define Christianity, those are the people who are happy to neglect these things, who are happy to neglect Christ for Christianity, right? You know, I think of that that great line from C.S. Lewis. I think it was C.S. Lewis where he said, yeah, uh, if an Anglican theologian was offered the option of going to heaven or to hear a lecture on heaven, he would take the lecture, right? Like, yeah, I think right. of that. there yeah. are people who, who can talk about Jesus all day long because they're afraid of actually making, giving their lives over to Christ. We can oh, yeah, hide behind even our love of theology. Um, finally, many Catholics have come to the idea that the substance of faith lies in living the gospel, despising the ritual 
as alien to the heart of the gospel. And consequently, ignoring the sacraments, ignoring that the sacraments impel and strengthen the intense living of the gospel itself, the need for an adequate articulation. Here are four Greek words. The, and the need for an adequate articulation is pointed out in martyria, martyrdom, lived witness, liturgia, liturgy, diaconia, service, diaconate, and koinonia, community, is therefore pointed out. I mean, come on, let's think about that. We hear this all the time. It's just about living the gospel. Jesus didn't care. Everyone should receive Holy Communion. Jesus said all are welcome. Jesus ate a table with everyone. And it's like, okay, well, we're draining the power of the sacraments right there. Well, well, okay, so the, the examples you just gave are obvious, and all our listeners are going to be like, yeah, I hear this, and this is terrible. But the truth is, the truth of the matter is that at most evangelization conferences, you are going to hear some form of this articulated by people who are at the very top of evangelization movements in the United States, people who are well-respected in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parishes across the United States will communicate some form of this, maybe not as obvious as what Gomer just said, but it happens all the time. Mm, mm, it surely does. So last one, last, last, paragraph, last paragraph. What are the consequences? Paragraph nine consequence. Not infrequently, pastoral agents receive the request for the reception of the sacraments with great doubts about the faith intention of those who demand them. <laughs> I boom. I underlined it like a thousand times. Like our episode that came out on November 10th. Right. Uh, so we're recording this on November 11th so that we can actually help our ascension press people have, have our have our files ahead of time. But the the episode, it was just a sad episode about me commiserating about the parish life and people treating us like garbage all the time. And this is the problem is they have like you constantly meet people who do not care about the faith, but they want the sacraments. Many others. So this is another consequence. Many others believe they can live their faith fully without the sacraments, which they consider optional and freely available, right? So they, this is, you get more consumerism kind of with this. With a different but widespread accent, there's a certain danger. Either ritualism devoid of faith for lack of interiority or by social custom and tradition or a danger of the privatization of the faith reducing, reduced to the inner space of one's own conscience and feelings. This is what Martin Luther did to faith, right? This is what it, by divorcing and Martin Luther was an Occamite. He was a disciple of a man named Gabriel Beale, who was the leading Occamist, uh, or excuse me, nominalist of the middle ages. And he was a nominalist. So you can understand why this man would begin the rupture between church and faith. The ecclesial dimension of faith doesn't mean what it does for the Lutheran that it does for the Catholic. Because he said to the church, this is how I feel. I cannot repent, right? This is what's going on. It's that reducing to the interior one's own conscience and feelings, right? It's it's like, you know, I, people are going to roll their eyes when I say it, but it's like I keep saying, if you want to know what the devil is doing, look at how he's attacking the flesh of Jesus Christ, period. That is what he's doing. He's attacking the flesh of Jesus Christ. When it was Arian, it, it was, during that time it was Arianism. Any other time, I, all these times, it's attacking the flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And, and that's, what, that's what this document's really all about. Yeah, which is why a Marian heart in the church safeguards what we believe about the flesh of Jesus Christ, right? Ooh, you're getting me all excited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love because, it. I mean, that, hey, that's Gomer. The, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. No, <laughs> what? no that's, that's this Marian dimension, right? The Marian dimension is the dimension of everything the church teaches about Mary safeguards what we believe about Jesus. Arianism didn't deny Jesus' humanity. They denied his divinity. But what that does is say it denies that God has come in the flesh. So thus, right. it kind of denies his humanity, right? Over and over again, all of these objections and obstacles fall dead at the feet of an authentic Marian devotion, which is why every Amen. evangelist needs to be like Mary and needs to listen to Mary, do whatever he tells you, right? So that's where we want to wrap up. That's where we want to end today's show. Holy moly, we only got, we got hey, Gomer. Nine, nine paragraphs in, yeah. 
Uh, that was a great episode. I just want to let you know when I'm done, I'm going to go down and get a delicious coffee and a, a, even a snickerdoodle cookie from Brother Andres. So. <laughs> oh, that's so great. When we're done here, I'm going to go over to a Keurig machine that I don't think has been cleaned in months, and I'm going <laughs> to use a McDonald's <laughs> cafe burnt tasting coffee and uh, cry a little. Cry a great. Little. What, what do we do. want them to read next time? Going okay. Now, there is a page called... Uh, it was part B of 1.2 and it's called the purpose of the document. And you, it, it, it's a handful. Uh, it's like a page and a half worth of text. It's not that big a deal. So I think we should incorporate that in the next step of, of reading. Let me bring up the document right here. What do you think, Dave? What, what should we have? Should we have them do the dial? Are we just going to do that one? Yeah. 10 through 14. Really? Just that, that's short. Then we're never going to oh, get okay. through this document. All right, we're never. All right, fine. I fine. would say You're I would in charge. Say, <laughs> I would say you should read two point one: the dialogical nature of the sacramental economy of salvation. So okay. that's that's chapter two, and two point one is the trinitarian God, source and end of the sacramental economy, and that actually has a awesome. ton of stuff in it. So again, just Google the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments. The whole document is called In the Sacramental Economy, but Google will finish it for you. Go to the Vatican's website. We'll include a link in the show notes. Go to the Vatican's website and read 2.1. It's all linked at the top. Thank God. The best thing of Pope Francis's papacy when it comes to the online world is almost all of their documents are hyperlinked. <laughs> so where yeah. they have a table of contents where you can just skip down to different parts. So go there and read um, 2, 2.1, and it's like A through E. They have these different things. So let's read that. And then we're going to come back Thanksgiving week because me and Dave are going to be ahead of this. Right, Dave? We're going to be ahead of this and we're going to get we're this ahead stuff right out. Now. We're ahead. We we're are ahead. sort of ish. Uh, and so we'll get this out so that um, the good folks at Ascension don't have to be editing our podcasts over Thanksgiving break. Whoopsie. God bless you all. All right, y'all. God bless. God bless.